0: Last One to the Party, the podcast where we check in with someone who's checking out a classic film, long-running TV show, or legendary performer for the very first time. Thank you for joining us once again on Last One to the Party podcast. We had a little bit of a hiatus, but we we're back last week. We're back again this week. i um, going to try to finish out the year strong. We've got a good episode this time around. It's a special episode. It's one from the vaults, as it were. It's kind of a special episode where I'm actually being interviewed by someone very good at their job and very impactful in this still new burgeoning industry of podcasting. Um, So I'm really looking forward to having you guys hear this and tell me what you think. I think next week we might tackle something a little bit different and and tackle... um, maybe something more musical there was a novelty record and there was a bunch of novelty records like this but there was one in the 70s i remember as a kid called mr jaws and we might have somebody uh, take a listen to that and do a little discussion on that one but uh before we get ahead of ourselves let's go ahead and jump into this particular episode where i get to be interviewed
1: Let's, uh, let's, let's get to the odd and wonderful. It, can we do that? I love this guy. I don't pay attention to um, where people... I barely know anyone's name.
0: Oh, that happens to me all the time. It's really embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I could know people for 20 years and still be like, oh, fuck. That exact same thing happened to me. Somebody I'd known for years, I just blanked. Right. What do you think that is? Oh, I don't know. I hope it's not an aneurysm, but it's, you know, probably something more embarrassing. Selfish thing? Yeah, probably like a selfish thing. You're just not really listening or paying attention or focusing on what's happening. Yeah. And so you just, you know, have that brain fart. Yeah. And it's just really, you know, I think a lot of people chalk it up to narcissism, which gets thrown around, that term gets thrown around like a football, you know, everybody's a narcissist to some degree.
1: So, uh, let me make sure I know your last name properly.
0: (laughs) It's Eason. (laughs) Pretty straightforward.
1: So, where did you, like, what kind of family did you grow up in? What was your dad?
0: Uh, My dad was a radio talk show host, and and, uh, he was at the number one station, KGO, a 50,000-watt station station. Very big deal. They were number one overall in the ratings. He was number one in his time slot. Now, wait. Now, so yeah. So he would talk to authors and celebrities coming through, and it was really interesting. To you know, we had we would make friends with like Werner Klimperer from Hogan's Heroes, who played Colonel Klink, and we went out to dinner with him a couple of times. We got to meet David Prowse, who was the guy inside the Darth Vader suit. I got to meet Stan Lee. I got to hang out with Mel Brooks for a day. Wow.
1: Well, where'd you grow up? San Francisco.
0: What was appealing about
1: San Francisco? Well,
0: for me, I remember it as being exciting and interesting. Right. It seemed like there was a lot going on that started in San Francisco. Yeah. Right. And was focused in San Francisco at the time. So yeah. So it was really kind of interesting in that way. To grow up surrounded by so many things that were, you know, a lot of movies were taking place in San Francisco, Dirty Harry and Bullet. And I mean, I was too young to watch them when they came out. But a lot of stuff was happening in San Francisco and it was had some of the old remnants of the hippie and music scene from the 60s still. Yeah. Gay pride was kind of burgeoning there. A lot of, you know, social movements were burgeoning out of San Francisco. Wow. So it was really exciting. It was very multicultural. That was a big part of it. And it always seemed like we were doing something interesting. Yeah. Mom was really good about taking us to museums and doing art classes and always having something to do. So we really got to see and experience the city. That's sweet. And also it still had a feel of being maybe a smaller city. And now it's so different. It's, you know, with the tech boom and bust and boom and bust and boom now, it's just huge. It's it's dominated by that industry. And it wasn't before it wasn't dominated by one single industry. So you had a lot of different neighborhoods and a lot of different types of people all living there. And now it's all just Facebook and Apple and Twitter. You know,
1: what's happening to me is I actually feel tapped out.
0: What do you mean tapped out?
1: I'm like doing half, half hearted tweeting. Like I'm not even engaged in it. It's like, I've gotten to the point where I'm just tweeting things like, okay, (laughs) okay, Yeah. And I always respond I, to the worst of them. Just people that are horrendous.
0: Ah, you can't do that.
1: I don't know what uh, the social networking thing is uh, creating in people.
0: It's create—it's the downfall of society, right?
1: And you grew up like in, uh, what was the family situation?
0: Uh, mom stayed at home until we were about in junior high. She was a very young mom. She was 19 when she had my sister and 20 when she had me. Yeah. And she went back to school at a certain point and then... Around the time we were in junior high, mm-hmm. as I said she re-entered the workforce right. and was a travel agent. That's fancy. We weren't latchkey kids, but you know, nobody was home, but by that time we were 14, 15 years old, mm-hmm. so it was fine. You watch TV, hang out with your friends, you know, do whatever you do. No drugs. Well, I mean, it was the late 70s into early 80s, but nothing hardcore. We yeah. Didn't, my parents didn't really drink, so there was no liquor cabinet to break into. Right. You know, my best friend from third grade to about ninth grade was the first one to introduce me to marijuana. mm mm-hmm. um, And so we would go to concerts and smoke weed. And yeah. I guess we would smoke weed on Friday nights when his dad took us to the Tanfran Mall. Right. That was a little ninth grade ritual. But again, like, that stuff was so different than it is now. Right. So... It-
1: Where'd you go to uh,
0: college? I went to Berkeley College of Music. Wow, that's fancy. What'd you study? Studied jazz composition and arranging. Wow. I decided I wanted to study jazz comp and arranging because I felt like I was going to play saxophone throughout my time there, right? And I wanted to learn how to do this other thing that I had no real training in. So you that, can write
1: and read music. Yeah.
0: So it was a chance to learn how to, you know write the different arrangements and drop two voicings and drop three voicings yeah. and you know all of that stuff as well as you know be forced to write songs right um, in addition to just playing saxophone you Did all right in school? I did pretty well. Most of my academic career is spent doing enough to get good but not great grades. <laughs> you win. That's my own personal little laziness flaw. That's hilarious. Uh, you know in high school in order to have permission to drive the family car You had to maintain a B average. Well, do
1: you think that part of it had to do with, like, uh, I mean... But uh, in my
0: defense, to an extent, you know, when I had something that I really wanted to do, I would dive in and really apply myself. Right. And my last semester at Berkeley, I had a really light course load. Yeah. And so I had a lot of free time, and I would wake up and just start learning a Sonny Rollins album. Wow. I put on... Night at the Village Vanguard, Volume 3. On vinyl, it came out in three different volumes. Mm -hmm. And I just put it on right at the beginning and just started learning it, playing along with it. And I would practice first thing in the morning until I got hungry for breakfast, eat breakfast, then practice some more until I needed a shower, and then practice some more until I was hungry for lunch. And I would do that on the days when I didn't have any glass. I would do that the whole day. What the hell did you eat? What did you do? Like all college students, I ate pasta. I ate ramen noodles and boiled up spaghetti. I
1: probably did that for a month. I mean that sounds like a bold thing to do and it seems like a, a life altering month.
0: Probably longer until I learned just about that whole album, all mm-hmm. but maybe one or two tracks on that album. What what was that what what was the impetus? It came from the the Zeitgeist at Berkeley was to learn the solos of the masters. Yeah. I felt like I hadn't done enough of that or I, I had done some of players who yeah. were maybe easier to transcribe.
1: And it, it obviously freed you some, from some things, but you know, here you are you know, looking for answers. You, it opened
0: used... me up to be able to really hear mm-hmm. what the other players are doing on the record. as a trio record, so I'm really hearing the drummer and the bass player, what they're doing and how they're responding yeah. to him and how he's responding. That was to the them. part you didn't do. You're just like, I just want to play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a part of it. That mm-hmm. became the... The real motivation yeah. and the writing and arranging kind of was secondary, even though that was my major. And then when I finished at Berkeley, I went straight to grad school. Did you apply to Juilliard and do the whole thing? I didn't audition at Juilliard, but I did audition at Manhattan School of Music, yeah. maybe Manus, Yeah, maybe one other place, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have me. I auditioned at New England Conservatory of Music, and they would. And so I've always thought less of them ever since. They, yeah, well, let's let's start unraveling it. I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member, you know? Mm-hmm. And I spent two more years in Boston at NEC and, you know, never fully felt like I fit in at NEC, but yeah. I still had my friends at Berkeley because they were a year or two behind me. So I hung out with them almost all of the time. And then, So, okay,
1: so you, you leave Berkeley and then you get an internship where?
0: Well, not so much an internship as I just moved home. Yep. Uh, back to the family house oh, in South City, South San Francisco. Right. And, you know, tried to get work, mm-hmm. tried to play, tried to do all the things. Yeah. I worked at a sports apparel store in the mall. You did not. Uh, you know, selling NFL parkas to kids right and uh my my boss one of my bosses was like a grown-up but then the manager or assistant manager of the store was still in high school wow so he was technically my boss right so that was fun right that was the internship was learning (laughs) how to be subservient to a high school student high school senior i think i hope you started in boston right i started in boston and then moved back to the bay area Mm -hmm. So I played a little bit in Boston, played mostly student stuff in Boston, then moved back to the Bay Area and started doing some professional gigs, Yeah, got taken under the wing by Larry Vukovich, who's a terrific piano player, and he let me sit in with him at his hotel gig. Right. He tried to really like show me what's what. I was a little too arrogant to fully appreciate it, mm-hmm. but I did eventually fully appreciate what he was trying to teach me. So that was great. That was all a great experience, but I got really restless being... You know, kind of just doing that and being back in foggy South City. And my friend had a opening in their apartment in New York, and so I moved to New York that following summer. And you didn't want to go to LA, LA was if you wanted to do studio work, presumably. I don't know, I'm mm-hmm. you know, I had these uh, fantasies/slash delusions about yeah. being you know, an artistic jazz musician in New York and playing in the small clubs, right. That was the dream, not bright, sunshiny L.A. making lots of money playing on soundtracks to movies and TV shows. But you'd also have to double, and I didn't like doing
1: that. That's like some sort of path in my mind that I should have taken. I have a lot of the books over there.
0: You mean the path to music school? You should have taken that path? I don't know. It it has its ups and downs.
1: But I could not quite grasp, uh, you know, it's like almost like math. There's a language to it, right?
0: Yeah, there's definitely, it's like learning any other language. Mm -hmm. You know, and Victor Wooten talks about teaching people how to play music and how to improvise music the way we teach kids how to speak their native language, that you just let them start speaking and making mistakes and you correct them along the way. Right. There's a logic to it. Uh, You know, I had a great professor, George Russell, great Mm -hmm. composer, who worked with Miles Davis and John Coltrane and. Bill Evans. Wow, and, you know, he said, "Music is mathematics, sounding," mm-hmm. and there's truth to it because it's all ratios. rhythm right. is a ratio. It's subdividing, and harmony is ratios, and right. Uh, so to that end, there is a logic to it, and then mm-hmm. kind of the way that there is a logic to language. Um, and
1: was it was there a music scene? Like, did you, did you get any of that kind of wave crashing of any? I mean, you're younger than me, so all those uh, Motor City bands were kind of gone, right? <laughs>
0: south city bands or just the city like san francisco bands there were some still there right i i tended not to go i didn't gravitate towards that because i was so such a jazz snob yeah but i look back and i feel like oh i should have woulda shoulda coulda i you know should have been a little more right a little more catholic in my taste at a certain point but Mm -hmm. you know there was punk stuff going on i'm sure that i missed out on that that
1: Like punk rock thing almost It's just the the thrust of it all I
0: really only remember the Dead Kennedys As being like the local punk band Right The Tubes were sort of punkish When they first started Yeah, yeah, yeah You know, they had popular hits And stopped being punk
1: did you ever listen to the gun
0: club a tiny bit, yeah, my friend Blake Stokes, who's in a great band called Jagged Baptist Club, yeah uh, who I've performed and recorded with mm-hmm. uh they're great. He's recommended the gun club to me, and I've checked him out a little bit right. I don't have anything that stands out yet. I've only yeah. listened to him a couple of times, but i liked I liked what I heard, so I'll probably listen to mm-hmm. some more It
1: almost has a, it's only you, you seem to be haunted by the spirit of American music.
0: I don't know if I'd say haunted
1: And you feel it Oh
0: definitely But you know I still have my weird blind spots mm-hmm. I still remember when Okay Computer came out Right And uh, I, a friend of mine Loaned me his CD of it And I thought Oh this guy's too whiny Right And I didn't get it and Yeah 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 And listened to it About six, seven, eight months later And then I got it You know Yeah 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 mm-hmm. And then Kind of on the other end of the spectrum I you know Will find myself Going down a rabbit hole Where mm-hmm. uh, I'll be online And I'll Listen to "Born to Be Wild" or "Magic Carpet Ride," and then I'm right. like, well, "What other songs do they have? You know, what what else can I dig into?" And so I try right. to fill in all the gaps on both sides of it. I, you know, yeah,
1: I just saw Radiohead the other night, and you know, they 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 got balls, man. Yeah, yeah, they're great. But Steppenwolf, I mean, they're known for like you know pushing that edge. I and, guess. You know,
0: I mean, I just you know those two hits are still the ones that stand out for me.
1: How's your ear? What? Like can I, it, like it, can you do like um, do you listen to Angus Young?
0: Yeah. I listened to, yeah, I listened to a lot of ACDC. I, if You Want Blood was one of the first ACDC albums I got. Like wow. weirdly. Highway to Hell. Maybe I got Highway to Hell a before that. But where does the... You mean like to play? Yeah. I I don't think it would work to play Angus Young on saxophone.
1: All right. But getting back to what I was saying, so you're yeah. in music
0: school and you're a funny guy. Yeah, I feel like I was always funny. I always was watching... right comedies and right. staying up to watch the the stand-ups on right. talk shows and mm-hmm. then quoting them on the playground the next day and right. and things like that and and absorbing that and right you know watching saturday night live and then sctv right. and money money python and then sctv were the real big comedy influences Oh, and Groucho Marx and the Marx Brothers.
1: Now, would your grandfather turn you on to that? How'd you come? I, I mean, because that's like another generation's right. comedy in a way, and there's not very many people. You're younger than me.
0: <laughs> well, no, it was on Channel 44 or Channel 36 right. back in the days of UHF. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd have cartoons on Saturday mornings, and then that would be what they showed on Sunday mornings. Right. So I started watching Marx Brothers because they were hilarious. Yeah. And, Harpo was crazy and Chico was funny and Groucho was great, you know. So, yeah, I was drawn to that and Groucho especially, the verbal guy, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. I watched the Marx Brothers, but I didn't lock in with the Marx Brothers. But that was like my father's generation when they were kids.
0: Yeah, but it still just manages to translate to a kid's brain no matter what year it is.
1: I did an impression of Groucho Marx when Me I was too, a young man. Me too, in second grade. For Miss Mardock. But it's weird, because I don't remember being a huge Marx Brothers fan, but I was sort of fascinated with Groucho Marx.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's just that giant painted-on mustache with the combination of what he's doing, but... And
1: what was it... I mean, did you... But, like, before, in the interim, did you do... Any, you didn't do any stand-up?
0: No, I checked out stand-ups. I was you know, kind of in between things and trying to figure out what to do with my life, if I should take it in a completely different direction. And, it, and I was looking into comedy things to, to maybe do. Right. I went to a bunch of open mic nights right. at all the different comedy clubs in New York. Yeah. And just It felt like such a grind to have to be that person and have to start from such a low beginning and just... Polish the stone over and over and over. It just seemed like such a grind. And uh, Well, do you think that part of it had to do with, like,
1: uh, I mean... Uh, I happened
0: to read an article about the UCB, and I went on Herald Nights, the student night, basically. I didn't go to ASCAT, which was the big night with them and all of their soon to become famous friends, right. And I fell in love with it because it had everything that I wanted. It had callbacks, it had story, it had yeah, 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 you know, performance and theater to it, mm-hmm. which was more than just standing there and demanding, you know, laughs every 3.2 seconds or whatever it is. you know, you're actually kind of creating theater, in the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the same with the with with in it's sort of Im- Im- immersed in the idea of what theater originally meant. Yeah, right. That, you know, it was a way to uh to revel in human emotion in a controlled way with uh with narrative arcs and on in a community setting. Y- I mean, And that it was like a proactive sort of life force in uh, of art.
0: Well, y- yeah, I mean, that's a real
1: <laughs> I I want to believe that too and I think that at a time this was the one form that, or of art that wasn't a spectacle, but it was meant to sort of uh, reflect back.
0: What? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's supposed to... What, what was that? What? Improv can do that. Yeah, I felt like improv was doing that, and that's what drew me to it, I think. What
1: made you uh, do the... com? What made you say, fuck this? To
0: music? What was the moment there? I just was getting... F- frustrated on some level with trying to be a musician in New York and right. a lot of it was my own timidity and right. and hesitancy of, of really putting myself out there. Okay. But, you know, I found myself in between jobs mm-hmm. and I started thinking about something my uncle had said about me being very verbal and very funny and mm-hmm. here I am pursuing something that, you know, takes that completely off the table. Yeah. And so I started checking out things in New York on the comedy scene. Right. And the UCB were new and different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no one had been doing improv like that in New York ever. It was short form, if anything. Right. Even then, there was one place that did it. Yeah. And so I took to it, and I started going every week to see the shows. Right. And then uh, taking classes. And then after my Level 3 class, I got put on a team. And it was a really good team. We stayed pretty much intact for about 10 years from that first formation. Right. It was... uh, me, Tara Copeland, Scott Armstrong, Jesse Falcon, Doug Moe, Jason Manzukas, Jessica St. Clair, Christine Walters, John Daly. Wow.
1: Who else did I just talk to that uh, was a friend of John Daly's that went to New York for him? Kurt
0: Braunohler or Brett Gelman? Yes. Yeah. So that group was together for a long time. And after just a short time together, a year or so, we started to develop our own show. Right. Which was even more sort of theatrical than what was common right. at the theater at the time. Yeah. And that form, with that form, we went to the Chicago Improv Festival, which was a big deal within the improv community. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. An award of some kind right. designating us as, like, you know, outstanding improv group for 2004, something mm-hmm. like that. We played at the Athenaeum Theater to, you know, a 900 seat theater, which was a trip to go from playing, you know, mm-hmm. 100 seats tops, maybe 50 seats. I don't know what it was. And then going to that was really. Fun, And then after a year or more of doing that form, we branched out and created another form where we took Mm -hmm. people's uh, CDs (laughs) Mm -hmm. and iPods and we would have somebody in the booth play music and we would improvise inspired based on that music.
1: Right. So this was sort of like it it was taking, uh, you know, improv to this other level of like performance art and you know and you know mixing media Yeah,
0: it was really fun. It was interesting and it was new at the time, especially with, you know, iPods just starting. We were taking advantage of that. And was it popular? Yeah, it was popular. It was really popular. We often times, if not most times, played to full houses close to sold-out houses at the UCB Theater. And it was, that whole experience was great because it gave me real hands-on experience performing on a stage in front of an audience and having to entertain. And it led to me doing other shows where I had to do different things and sketch shows and uh, even hosting shows and things like that. And, you you know, that helped make me feel more comfortable to, you know, launch my own podcast, for example. You know, at this point, Uh, I've done... 20 some odd episodes of my own podcast and a lot of that springs from the experiences I had at the UCB
1: did you do something on your podcast did you interview yourself or oh
0: I what I I went through some of your old episodes and I pieced it together to make it sound like you were interviewing me so I did kind of a meta thing like that that's our show I
1: hope you enjoyed that I thought it was interesting
0: If you'd like to follow Jessica online, you can find her on Instagram at Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. And Elena is E-L-A-I-N-A, Jessica underscore Elena underscore Eason. You can follow me on Instagram at James underscore Eason underscore music. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me, James Eason.